1: for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed.
0: And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years,
2: Well, this is a this is a, a fun time to do this particular passage uh, of Jesus being dedicated at the temple because uh, I don't know if you know this or not. Maybe you do. Uh, we're experiencing a baby boom here at the church right now. I think there's I think there's six on the way. Ha ha! ha. That's one way to grow the church membership. That's a. Uh, so this is this is wonderful, wonderful. Well, I want you to imagine for a, a second, I want you to imagine for a minute that you're traveling out of town alone on business, and while traveling out of town, you're mugged. You know, you're you're uh, beaten up a little bit, and, and the thieves take you out to a remote area, take your identification, your phone, your car, your gear, all your clothes, and all they leave you with is a barrel, and apparently a hat, socks, and shoes, but but they leave, they leave you with primarily a barrel. What would you do? What would you do in that situation? You're out in the middle of nowhere and you're wearing a barrel. Well, what you'd have to do is you'd have to walk somewhere and you'd have to find somebody who would listen to you. And in our modern age, can we just all agree that if, you, if you're at home and you get a, a, an alert on your ring doorbell and you look and there's a dude standing there with a barrel on, you're probably not gonna answer the door. Do we agree to that? Anyway, so you got to find somebody that will listen to you. And if you do find somebody to listen to you, what are they going to do? They're probably going to call the authorities, call law enforcement. And law enforcement is going to come and they're going to they're ask you what your name is and, and your address and all that. And But they have no way of of corroborating who you really are, right? And so they're going to probably say something like this. Now, listen, I'm not a law enforcement officer, but but I've seen a lot of TV. So this is probably what they're going to do. <laughs> They're going to say, is there anybody who can vouch for who you really are? And so they ask you, and you say, well, yeah, and you give them a name of a person who's a friend of yours who happens to be at that moment on the run from law enforcement because they've committed a crime. Now, is that a good person to bear witness to your identity? No, right? It's a terrible person. So uh, so then they ask you again, and you give them the name of a, of a very well-known person who happens to have died three weeks ago. Is that a good person to bear witness to your identity? No. So finally, they ask you a third time, and you give them the name of your spouse. Now don't ask me why it took you so long to come up with that, but you give them the name of your spouse, and uh, they call your spouse, your spouse arrives, and your spouse is able to identify themselves officially because they have all their stuff. They, they run the name and address and they say, yep, your, your spouse, this is, this is a real person and, and they have a clean record, by the way. At least you hope that your spouse has a clean record. And, uh, and they vouch for who you are. Now, from that moment on, your identity has been, been verified and now they can begin the work of figuring out where those thieves are and perhaps even apprehending them. Eventually, they find some suspects and they bring you in for a police lineup And maybe that looks something like this. I don't know. (laughs) Could be. Could be. What Steve Koval says, he wants to be in the lineup. What? No, the the passage that we're in today, we'll come back to this, but the passage that we're in today highlights two people who are part of the narrative of Jesus' birth, Simeon and Anna, right? And they, if you're like me, you read, the book of Luke, and you kind of just read right past him. You say, well, there's a couple of people that that recognize the baby Jesus as Messiah. That's true. But I wanna just share with you this morning that there's so much more to this narrative than that. And so we're gonna get into it. Let's dig in and see what God will teach us today. The big question we're gonna wrestle with is this. Who were Anna and Simeon, and why do they matter? Who were Anna and Simeon, why do they matter? Now, first, let's get into the occasion of this meeting. You know, uh, Mary and Joseph have Jesus. They're going to the temple. They meet up with Simeon and Anna. What's the occasion? Well, the text tells us, right? And when the time came for their purification, this is Luke 2.22, when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. They were in Bethlehem, not too far away. So they bring him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as is written in the law of the Lord, Every male who first opened the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, in order to understand this, let's take our Bibles for just a second and turn to Leviticus chapter 12. Leviticus chapter 12. Everybody loves to read Leviticus, right? It's so much fun. Just action-packed. But in Leviticus chapter so. Okay, for those of you that are new, newish or just a little bit uneducated on how this all works, the Old Testament is basically I'm paraphrasing heavily the adventures of the people of Israel, right that's what the Old Testament is, and um, uh, they're important, they're very important because eventually they they brought forth from their people a messiah, Jesus Christ, and uh, for lots of other reasons too but In the adventures of the people of Israel, uh, God had established a people and he had given them a constitution to run their their nation with. Israel was a theocracy. It's a kind of a blending of their religion and their uh, government together as one. And um, so they had a constitution. That constitution is what we would call the Old Testament law, okay? It's It's the laws that they live by, kind of like our US constitution here, they had the Old Testament law. And within that law, there were all kinds of rules and regulations, uh, and rules and regulations even pertaining to the worship of God. And so let's look at one of those rules in Leviticus chapter 12. Just follow along with me. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, if a woman and, uh, if a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days at the end of her, uh, as at the time of her menstruation. She shall be unclean, and on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. That's the child. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are complete. But if she bears a female child, she shall be unclean two weeks as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. Let's stop right there. Does the Bible tell us why uh, uh, there's one period of time for boys and one period of time for girls? Does the Bible tell us that? It does not. If you wanna have fun, read some commentaries on this passage and and watch people try to guess why God chose there to be one period of time for if you've given birth to a boy and a different period of time if you've given birth. It's a hoot, all right? It's a riot. But the Bible, the truth is The Bible doesn't tell us. It just says, God has said, you wait this many days before you can do it. You can go be purified. Verse six, and when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of... Of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. Okay. Part of God's Old Testament law revolved around the idea of God's holiness. And there were certain activities that uh, an Israelite could do that would render them unclean. And all unclean means is that that they were not allowed to touch anything holy, and they were not allowed to go into, earlier in the history of Israel, it would be the tabernacle complex. At this time in Israel's history, it's the temple complex. They were not allowed to go into there because that was where God's presence was, and they were unclean, and God is holy, and God can't be polluted, so they... Part of this Old Testament law governed uh, with how you could approach God. You could not approach God in a state of uncleanness. The good news is that within that law, God gave remedies, how to become clean once you were unclean. And as you saw in the text, in order to become clean, blood had to be shed. A lamb, a turtle dove, a pigeon, you get the idea. That, By the way, that points forward to... The coming and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But while they were under the Old Testament law, this is the way they had to do it. They were unclean. When a woman gave birth to a child, for a period of time, she was unclean. The best analogy that I can come up with of this is think about early in the COVID pandemic, COVID 19. Remember when we were all locked down, right? And we had to sanitize everything and wear gloves and masks and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, maybe you would order. Uh, groceries to come to your house, and then you get a pair of tongs and pick the bag up and put it and let it sit for three days or something. That's kind of like, not exactly like, but the, you know, this is kind of fresh in our mind, so I thought this is kind of like what, what it would be like to be unclean, right? So they were to come, and uh, in the Bible, there's all kinds of regulations for the different types of offerings. And in this case, they were to make a burnt offering which is a general atonement for sin and also shows one's devotion to God, and a sin offering, which is typically for unintended sin or purification after a time of ritual impurity. The sin offering uh, would allow the person who is unclean to re-enter the presence of God in the temple for worship. Again, all these laws, these rules, these regulations were there to remind the people of God's holiness and their brokenness and that blood had to be shed for them to be reinstated into uh, worship of God in his presence. So that was reason number one. They were going there because Mary was still ceremonially, ceremonially unclean and she had to be go through this ritual of purification. The second reason is found in Exodus chapter 13 verse 2 Which says this, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb of the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. This is God speaking uh, to Moses. Now, the logic here is that, again, remembering your Old Testament, God rescued Israel out of Egypt through the Passover, right? Meaning uh, God was going to kill all the firstborn children in Egypt Unless, and he commanded the people of Israel to slaughter a lamb, a spotless lamb, and smear the blood on the doorposts and the lintels of the door. And if the angel of the Lord saw the blood, they would pass over and not take the firstborn. And so the logic is that since God delivered Israel from Egypt through the Passover, where he spared the firstborn children, the firstborn are now to be dedicated specifically to him. It's the way it worked. It's the Old Testament system. So Mary and Joseph were coming to Jerusalem out of obedience to the Old Testament law. And it's out of this obedience, or it is this obedience to the law that would produce this meeting, this special meeting uh, with Simeon and Anna uh, that's recorded in the scripture today. So what does the text tell us about Simeon and Anna? Here we go. Number one, they were devoted to God. They were devoted to God. So we're going to look at Simeon and Anna at the same time. So uh, I'm going to read verse 25 and then verses 36 and 37. First about Simeon, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, that's Simeon. Verse 36, "She she, Anna, was advanced in years, having lived with her husband 70 years from when she was a virgin And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Let me point out a few things here. First of all, Simeon, neither Simeon nor Anna were rich or famous or powerful that we know of in the text. They were not uh, anybody that held any kind of office. In fact, uh, back in these days, the Jews tended to see someone who was a widow, especially a widow at that young of age, because she only lived with her husband seven years, they, they considered that perhaps she had committed some sin and that God was punishing her by leaving her alone. Now, Jesus came and he poked holes in that thinking. He shredded that thinking. But that would have been, that, so she might have been a bit of a social outcast, Uh as a widow lady up there in age. But what set them apart, what, what this text seems to indicate, what set them apart was their manner of life. The way they lived was different. So there's a couple of words associated with them. I'll just bring it up. One is reputation. Simeon's name in Hebrew, or in, in uh, yeah, well, in, in Greek, means to hear, to be heard, or... Also carries the, the the meaning of the word reputation. He is described in the text as a righteous and devout man. His concern was for his nation. He's concerned about the consolation of Israel. And folks, Israel, at this at this particular period of history, Israel had problems. <laughs> she had a lot of problems. They had fallen and suffered decay ever since the golden years of Israel, where King David and King Solomon uh, reigned in succession. They had suffered morally from that time under evil kings. The kingdom had split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was eventually dispersed by the Assyrians. And whenever I say, you know, think about this from now on, whenever I I talk to you about the Assyrians, think of modern-day Al-Qaeda, just very brutal people, warring people, not merciful people. But the northern kingdoms of of the northern kingdom of Israel were dispersed by the Assyrians. And the southern kingdom later on spent years in captivity by the Babylonians who were then conquered by the Persians. And eventually they were allowed to come back to Israel, to the land of Israel, and rebuild. They were deported for many years And they were allowed to trickle back and start rebuilding. Hundreds of years had passed since all those events had taken place. But the nation of Israel at this period of time was a shadow of what it used to be. The temple, in all of its glory, in the days of David and Solomon, well, in the days of Solomon, because David wasn't allowed to build the temple. But the temple in the days of Solomon was a magnificent structure, ornate, and just glorious to look at. And the temple... Uh, of this period, because the temple had been demolished and rebuilt, the temple was just a hollow shell of what it used to be. It's the difference between a, a very nice mansion and maybe, you know, a shack. The presence of God was no longer manifest in the temple and if that wasn't enough... At this red-hot time, they were under the occupation of the Roman Empire. They didn't even have autonomous control of their own land. They were under the control of the Romans, who were not God-fearing people at all. Simeon's concern for his nation was for the restoration that would bring comfort. He likely desired that someone would come and set things right. And the text tells us that he was told that he would not die until he saw the coming of Christ. I want to take a minute here and take a side note and help us to train our brains a little bit, because there's a lot of bad thinking out in the world today. And, um, uh, you know, as, as somebody has coined the phrase, you know, we're kind of living in a fictitious propaganda panorama, right, where all the things around us are lying to us, the the news is lying to us and all. And, and so we're getting a very unclear picture of what's really going on. And so I've noticed here re- recently that that um, that one of the terms that's getting bandied about, and, and it's dangerous for even me to even bring this up, but, but uh, the term that's getting bandied about is the term Christian nationalism. And I see a lot of people fighting about Christian nationalism. And uh, to read what they're talking about, I don't even think that people are sharing the same definition. So let me just say this. Um, that if by Christian nationalism, and again, I think it really depends on your definition, if by Christian nationalism, what we mean is the desire that people of the United States could unite in the understanding that living according to the principles laid out in God's word promotes the maximum amount of freedom for all people, I don't think that's a bad thing. In fact, I think it's a good thing. And so I just want to encourage you, when you hear, I, I think that that phrase, Christian nationalism, is just getting pummeled out in public, but I think that the definition that they're using is a completely different definition where they, they've got these th- thoughts that the church is trying to make the, the country of the United States into a, a theocracy like Old Testament Israel. And I don't think any of us want that. As, at least I know, I don't trust, I don't trust government officials with, with theology. <laughs> So, you know, I, I think that the system that we have is, is, is good and, and could get better if we would all agree that, um, that there are things laid out in God's word that are, that are right and good. And, and, and certainly, I'm going to live according to them as a follower of Jesus Christ, and then I'm going to take my beliefs and, and vote accordingly. And, and if, that is what, if that's a bad thing, then I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing as a Christian. So just be pay attention to the definitions of phrases, and when somebody comes along and says something Christian is bad, ask them, what do you mean? What's, what's the definition that you're talking about? Uh, there, I did, did a little brain training today. Anyway, this text tells us that the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon, and remember that God has not unleashed the Holy Spirit on the church yet. In fact, the church doesn't exist exist yet. That doesn't come to the book of Acts, right? And, and so... What we learn as we study our Old Testament is that oftentimes when the Holy Spirit was said to be upon someone, that they were empowered for either some sort of special mission, like Samson, or that they were empowered to give a special message, a special message like the prophets. And I think what we're going to see here in a minute is that Simeon is going to bring a special message. He had already received a message, but now he's going to give a message here in a minute. Anna had also built a reputation, but perhaps hers is a bit more of a humble reputation. She was uh, a virgin and then she married and was married for seven years. Her husband died, she was a widow. And from the time when she was a widow until the age of 84, she spent all of her time in the temple complex fasting and praying. Now, let me, let me talk about fasting for a minute because it came up in the text. Ta- I, I have to deal with fasting and prophecy today. And I want to talk about Christmas. No fair. Anyway, let's talk about fasting for a minute, because again, there's a lot of misinformation, even in the Christian world, about fasting, like it's some sort of magical, mystical thing. It's not. Fasting, my best understanding of fasting is that it's honoring God by reckoning that I would rather spend my time in fellowship with him than caring about my personal needs in regards to hunger, so I don't think it's a bad thing for, for Christians to maybe take a meal or two every week and you know maybe your lunch hour at work and instead of eating, hey, spend some time with the Lord in prayer, listening to Christian music or reading God's word. Anna was very practiced at this. She was spending her time fasting so that she could pray to God. What was she praying about? I don't know. But later we're gonna see that she was concerned about the redemption of Jerusalem. So maybe that's what it was. And can I just say, have you, ever tried to, have you ever tried to pray for an hour, like straight? You need to be on top of your game writing, you know, with a list of things you're gonna pray about, right? Uh, so uh, on your way out of here today, pick up a prayer sheet and give that a try. Just take some, some meaningful time and try to pray. And um, you'll see that Anna was a very disciplined person. Spending this much time in prayer and fasting. The other word I'll bring up is grace because that's what Anna's name means. Simeon means reputation, Anna means grace. Uh, Grace, remember, the definition is getting more than you deserve. Anyone could argue that what Anna's aged eyes are about to see coming into the temple complex was God's grace. She was about to see something incredible. I found a picture online I wanted to throw up while I talk about this next point. I just think it's a cool depiction of this episode. Simeon with the baby Jesus in his arms and Anna standing by. And can I say this? There's There's an insight that is gained from following Christ. Let me try to flesh that out. When you you follow Christ, when you really get into his word and begin to see what he has to say and then begin to practice those things in your life, your vision, your your understanding of the world begins to change. And I say it changes for the sharper, changes for the good. Let me give you some examples. When I was a younger, more immature Christian, I might have said things like this. Out of frustration, I might have said, Lord, destroy all the enemies of the church, Just wipe them off the face of the planet. I might have said, Lord, get me out of this trial. It stinks. I don't like it. Deliver me out of this trial, Lord. I I may have said, Lord, make this sick person well again. They're a friend of mine, and I love them. Please. Or I might have said, Lord, the problem in my marriage, of course, is my spouse. Sorry, Tracy. Tracy. But as I've grown and I've learned God's ways, as I've gained a deeper understanding of his word, I can now say things like this. Lord, save all of the enemies of your church. Reveal to them yourself and show them your saving power and the power to transform their lives as you've shown it to me. I can also say, Lord, this trial that I'm going through, teach me all that you would have me to learn through it. It's, it's painful, it's difficult, I don't like it. But teach me, build my character, shape me into the image of your son. Lord, I do pray for healing for that sick person, but teach us all the lessons that you would have us to learn, both the sick person and myself, through this trial. And then in, in regards to my marriage, I would say, Lord, I know that the problem in my life, in my marriage, is my own sick, sinful heart. You realize that in the world that we live in today that there are whole churches and movements of churches that are built on a very immature understanding of God's word. For example, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, that God really wants you to be healthy and and rich, and that's based on a very, very, surface level. It appeals to the flesh. It's it's based on a very, very superficial understanding of God's word. God is not building a kingdom of riches and wealthy people. God is building a, a kingdom of people with character, like the character of Christ. That's what he's doing. Someday we'll dwell in that heavenly kingdom that'll be wonderful. But here he's transforming us to be like Jesus. Simeon and Anna were devoted to God, and when Mary and Joseph came to the temple carrying the Savior of the world, they were entering the very epicenter of the Jewish faith, the pinnacle of the Jewish religion, the temple complex, filled with people who, as a, for a profession, as a living, exist there, learning, teaching, making sacrifices, serving the people. This was a whole professional class of people And so in the Jewish temple, there would have been priests and leaders, Pharisees and Sadducees. And Mary and Joseph come in carrying Jesus and who recognizes him according to Luke's text? Two people who were not devoted to a religious system that had gone off the rails. Either the Pharisees who were, Very akin to what we would today call legalistic Christianity, or the Sadducees, who were very akin to what we would today call liberal Christianity. They were simply devoted to their best understanding of what God had said through his word and through his prophets. And so when Jesus came into the temple, carried by his mother, Simeon and Anna knew. I find that fascinating. And it reminds me of the verse in 1 Corinthians 1, 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So they were devoted to God. What else do we know about Simeon and Anna? We know this, that God was at work in them. God was at work in them. Verse 26 says, and it had been revealed to him, Simeon, by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And then in verse 36 it says and there was a prophetess Anna the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher God was at work in them Simeon had received a special message from a special message from God right In Old Testament times God would communicate to his people through prophets and Simeon had received special revelation from the Lord and so he too was in that camp and that had to do with his filling of the Holy Spirit. And, it, and I would encourage you to take time uh, in the next few days and look at Numbers 11, 25 to 29, and you'll see that uh, in the Old Testament, you'll see an episode where some men were filled with the Holy Spirit and they did prophesy, and it kind of freaked everybody out, except Moses. Moses was encouraged by that. And so uh, you can see what's going on. Simeon, God is at work in Simeon's life. We also see that Anna is classified here in the scriptures as a prophetess. And so I feel the need to take a few minutes today and talk about what this means and what it means specifically to us today. Again, Old Testament prophets speak a message from God that is often associated with a... So again, this is how it works. In the Old Testament, a prophet would often speak a message from God to the people and then oftentimes accompany that message with a short-term prediction of something that was about to happen. And so the thinking was, if the prediction that they made comes true, then the message really is from God. That happened many times in the Old Testament. And so uh, I, I put up, I'm gonna put up on the screen for you uh, some bullet points that I found on a website, bible.org, and it lays out in it the, uh, the rules for prophets that are in the Old Testament law. Again, the Old Testament law governed everything for these people, uh, for the Jews. And, and in Deuteronomy 18, it laid out the guidelines for people who claim to be prophets. And so here's what this, this text, Deuteronomy 18, 20 and 22, says in, in our terms today. It says, number one, he must speak in the name of the Lord, not in some other God. Makes sense. Makes sense. Secondly, he must; his message must be in a, in accord with God's revealed truth in Scripture. In other words, God is a, a never changing God. He never changes; he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, when he makes a proclamation and that's written down and codified in his Word, he's not going to send a prophet later on that's going to debunk that or to change it. And so, uh, a prophet, if a prophet speaks, they have to speak in accord with God's revealed truth in Scripture. And then thirdly and finally, his predictions of future events must come true exactly as predicted. Exactly as predicted. Now, does anybody remember, does anybody happen to remember what you do with a prophet who didn't have their things come to pass exactly as predicted? I think you stoned them, right? I think, I think that was the thing in the Old Testament law. That's not true today. Don't pick up rocks at me, please. Uh, but, but in the Old Testament day, you would, you would stone that person if their predictions did not come true because that was a false prophet. By the way, um, there, are, there are people today in our world that purport themselves to be Christian prophets. And these folks sometimes engage themselves in making predictions about the future. And I don't know if you pay attention to this stuff or not, because I, I, I'm a nerd and I like to pay attention, but there were a whole bunch of quote-unquote quote prophets, these are people that I don't typically listen to, but a whole bunch of quote-unquote prophets who predicted that a certain former president would, be, would win a second term of election, and that didn't happen. Now, well, we can argue about whether the election was legitimate or not, and I might be on your side on that, but... It didn't come to, to truth. And so, and so another fellow, another Christian fellow published an article about what to do when your prophecies don't come true and how you can kind of go back and, and edit those things. And I'm like, I mean, I have the document. It's in my backpack. It's wild. But uh, it's, um, no, if God says it, it's going to come to pass, Right? So the Bible doesn't give us any details about Anna's prophecies. The Bible just tells us that she was a prophetess. Now, here's the thing. We live in 2021, soon it'll be 2022 if, if the Lord tarries. We have in our hands the word of God, complete. In fact, in the book of Revelation, it says don't add to it, don't take away. We have it, right? And so my, here's my question My question is, is that given that we have the completed word of God and Peter tells us that it's everything, that we have everything that we need for life and godliness, then what are we talking about with modern day prophets today? Last night, my daughter, uh, Ellie, went to a movie with some friends and we had to pick her up after the movie, we had to pick her up from the theater after the movie was over so she could, you know, come home, go to bed. And so uh, we're sitting over the dinner table, trying to discern. My wife and I trying to discern when the movie when we would pick her up, because we would have to like look at the runtime of the movie and then predict how long the the previews were. And as we're sitting there, going, "Well, maybe the previews will be ten minutes, and maybe they'll be twenty minutes, maybe they'll be thirty minutes." They're getting longer, it seems to me. But uh, you, you get the idea. Uh, while we were talking, I just picked up the phone and called the front desk of the strand and said, what time is the movie going to let out? And the gentleman on the other side said, 1015. Now I know. Why, why do this guesswork when we can go right to the source, right? Right to the source of truth. And so here's what I, here's what I, uh, here's what I say. We have the word of God. So in terms of prophecy, we can easily satisfy number one and number two on this list. And as far as predictions go about the future, God has told us everything we need to know. Let me say that again. As far as predictions about the future, God has told us everything that we need to know. Are there some things we'd like to know? This is me being funny. Have you ever noticed that the modern day prophets never predict the lottery ticket numbers? You know, we got a building program going out here. It would be really nice if we could know those lottery ticket numbers, right? But somehow they never predict those. Why is that? It's because I think that the modern day prophets, the folks that are calling themselves prophets in terms of number three, predicting the future, are full of uh, hot air. So here's what I, here's my counsel to you, church. My counsel to you is this. If someone that you know or someone that you follow on social media or whatever purports themselves to be a prophet, a Christian prophet, then do not trust them unless they are running 100% true on their predictions, 100%, not 90, not 99, 100%. And can I just say this in all love? I have not encountered that person in my lifetime. And I follow these things. I have not encountered that person in my lifetime. Now, I'm not talking about the person who predicts that tomorrow the sun will rise. Because anybody of, any of us could make that prediction, right? I'm talking about the person that says, tomorrow you're going to be sitting at your desk at work and some guy named Leon's going to come in. You've never seen him before. And he's going to give you an envelope. And in that envelope is a cell phone. And in that cell, on that cell phone, you're going to get a call from the president of the United States. That's a prediction. I haven't found that person. So be careful, church, when somebody claims to be a prophet, unless they're telling you that they're a prophet in the vein of number one and number two, speaking in the name of the Lord, a message that is in accord with his recorded word. But if he's a number three prophet, be careful. All right, what else about Anna? Anna was the daughter of Phanuel. And again, you might wanna jot this down. I don't have time to go to it today, but uh, write down Genesis 32, Genesis 32, beginning in verse 22. Genesis 32, 22. Go there, look at that. This is Jacob wrestling with the Lord at the river, at the river Jabbok. And if you remember that episode, it's, it's uh, Israel, or uh, Jacob wrestled with the Lord and uh, at the end of that, he was renamed Israel. Jacob was renamed Israel, which was the beginning of the nation of Israel. And Jacob was renamed Israel and that name means they struggle with, they wrestle with God. And he named that place Peniel, which in Hebrew means the face of God. Phanuel is the Greek version of that name. Anna is the daughter of the face of God, was the person's name. Ironically, she's going to see walking into the temple, the face of God. And then finally, she's of the tribe of Asher. She's of the tribe of Asher. Asher was one of the 12 tribes of Israel, but it was one of the 10 tribes of the northern kingdom that split off from the southern kingdom. And it was one of the tribes that was dispersed by the Assyrians, you know, Al-Qaeda, it was it was dispersed by them. And so it's kind of a wonderful thing that It's kind of a mysterious and wonderful thing that this this daughter of the tribe of Asher has somehow made it back to Israel, made it back to Jerusalem, and is now living and worshiping there. Of course, God says in his word that he's going to have representatives from all 12 tribes in his kingdom. All right. So not only are they devout, God is at work in their lives. Finally, last point. They provide two reliable witnesses of the new way. They provide two reliable witnesses of the new way. Verse 27, Luke 2. And he came in the spirit, Simeon did, into the temple. And when the parents brought the child, Jesus, to do to him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed him and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. Stop right there. This is uh, this is Simeon taking the child into his arms and then thanking God for what he has been allowed to see. His time on earth is now complete because the word that he was spoke that was spoken to him, you'll see the, the Christ before, you'll see the Christ before you die is now complete, it's there. And so he's saying, not only is this a person of salvation, but this is also a person who will be a light, not only to Israel, but also to the Gentiles. Remember, Gentile is just any non-Jewish person. I'm a Gentile. So a light to the Gentiles. So he makes this proclamation to God, and then it goes on, verse 33, and his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. I think Mary and Joseph are beginning to understand. They're beginning to get it. This is a special child. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts... From many hearts may be revealed. We'll come back to that in a second. And then skipping down to verse 38 says, "And coming up at that very hour, she, Anna began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now let's talk about this for a minute. First of all, as I said earlier, and this is, this is uh, obvious, but Simeon and Anna were people of high reputation. They had a good name, right? And in the Proverbs, it talks about this. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. Why is that? Young people, why is that? Why do we, and by the way, I think older our older generations here in the United States made a bigger deal out of that than we do today. We tr- we teach our children today to grow up, I think, grow up, um, be nice, you know, obviously, get a job and earn lots of money. But But back in the day, people were concerned about their name, you know, uh, do you have a good name? Are you a person that can be trusted? Whatever. Why is that? It's because when, when we fall upon hard times, right, if we have spent our lives being a good person to others, to, to build into their lives, to help them when they're down, to, to honor all people, then when our life hits a rough patch, then the community will come to our support. You know, it, I, it makes me think of It's a Wonderful Life, you know, the, the, the big finish of It's a Wonderful Life uh but um but if we if we are only concerned about ourselves then um then perhaps we our money we could try to save ourselves with our money but when that runs out what do we have these were people with a good name Simeon and Anna and so what does that mean what it means that they were uh they were um principal I want to talk about the principle of the two witnesses so in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 5, again, back to the Old Testament law, the way that you establish something in evidence, uh, whether it was a crime or some other thing, the way you establish something is on the, on the testimony of two witnesses. So what it says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so, what do we see? We see two people who the Bible describes as people of high character, Uh, two people who bear witness that this really is the Messiah. This really is the Christ. This child is the one. Again, in my mind, I've got, I see priests making sacrifices. I see Pharisees deliberating over matters of spiritual. I see Sadducees, you know, worrying about the temple coffers and all these kinds of things. I see all this activity going on. And who is recognizing this child, the savior of the world that came into the temple? Simeon and Anna, providing two witness testimonies. Simeon puts a blessing on... On the child, very indicative of Genesis 27 when uh, there was the blessing of Jacob, and then later we see what happened to Esau, but it just takes us back to that. And it's a very difficult and challenging blessing that is said, right? It's a, It's basically, and I'm going to boil this down to, to my Scott TD simple language, but Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. A sword will pierce through your own soul also. Mary is going to be cut to the quick uh, regarding Jesus' life so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Here's my farm boy (laughs) simple analysis. Jesus is going to be a very polarizing figure. You're either going to follow him. You're either going to follow him or you're gonna reject him. You're either gonna follow him, or you're going to reject him. He's going to be the one that reveals the heart. And can I say, can I, get, can I put on my preacher hat for just a minute? That there are many folks who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, who claim to be given over to him, to be a slave to Jesus. But when someone brings a word from God in the form of a confrontation, as loving as it can be, as gentle as it can be, when somebody brings a word of rebuke or a correction to you and you reject that word of correction that's coming directly from the Scripture, God's word, you have to ask yourself the question, are you a follower or are you pretending to be one? Because a follower of Jesus Christ is going to look at what the word of God clearly says, examine their life and say, I need to change. Yes, thank you. Thank you for bringing this to my attention. I repent of that activity and I'm going to confess that to the Lord, seek forgiveness and walk forward in a closer, in a closer relationship and a closer adherence to God's word because he's given me freedom. So he pronounces a blessing. And then he points towards, he and, and Anna both point towards the, count, the consolation and salvation for God's people, including, especially Simeon, the Gentiles. In the world that we live in today, in the church that we exist in today, there are those that, that are analogous to the Pharisees, the legalistic, very uh, the, the legalistic Christians, who go beyond what the word of God says. There are also uh, the Sadducees, analogous to the Sadducees, liberal liberal Christians who make the Bible mean whatever they want it to mean. And so my exhortation to you, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that we not be followers of people. We're not followers of, pick your favorite theologian, pick your favorite Christian author, pick your favorite Christian podcaster. We're not followers of Al Mohler. We're not followers of Tim Keller. We're not followers of Jen Wilkin. We're not followers. We we only listen to these folks as it pertains to their clear articulation of what is accurately in the word of God. Be followers of Jesus. Learn his word, apply it into your life. That's what God has given us. So who is Anna and Simeon incredible witnesses that God's Messiah had indeed come So by way of application let me just let me just say this a couple things in order to see clearly we have to devote ourselves to the knowledge and practice of God's word and we need to be we need to be studying God's word. We need to be clear in our minds of what the gospel is. And we need to apply these things into our lives. We do not, we, you do not want to walk around in the blindness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You want to see clearly the way Anna and Simeon did. You want that, right? You want to be able to see this life clearly. And if you want to, if you want to see this life clearly, then my exhortation to you is to read God's word and implement it into your life. And then secondly, strive to build credibility and influence by living skillfully. And I just add the caveat, according to God's word, strive to live credibly and, and strive to build credibility and influence by living according to God's word, and then use it to bear witness of Jesus Christ. I know a man, uh, I'll end with this. I know a man who uh, who does this. He lives with he, he lives skillfully in his own life. He makes no bones about the fact that though he works in the corporate world, he is a follower of Jesus Christ. He, he's not bombastic about it, but he's very clear about his convictions. And, and this man tells me that routinely, there are people in his office and lined up out the door who are seeking advice on the things of life because they've made a shipwreck of their lives. They're not even followers of Jesus Christ. And they see this man and they see, a man who has lived well with conviction and they want what he has. Let's strive to be those type of people. Strive to be those type of people. Back to this guy. When this man was wandering around in with a barrel on, what did he need? He needed someone to, to bear witness, and that witness had to be a credible witness of who this man was, each of us have the opportunity to be a credible witness of Jesus. The way we live, the way we talk, the things that we do, the cha- things we choose to invest in and not invest in will point to who we believe, who we think is real. So I wanna encourage you today to be a witness like Simeon and Anna for Christ. Christ. Father, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for this time you've given us to open up and study your word please Father uh, pray that you would now bear fruit through your word in our lives. Father, perhaps your Holy Spirit is convicting someone in this, someone here today that of, of the changes that need to be made. Father, I pray that uh, your work would chisel away at all the gunk, all the sin in our lives and that Uh, Christ would be made manifest in each one of our lives. Father, uh, help us to get an even bigger sense, a greater sense of awe and wonder as we approach this Christmas season as to the, the, the Prince of Peace, the wonderful counselor coming into this world to set things right. He's the one that we follow. So help us, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.